the way it's used. The rich fool. Luke chapter 12, 13 through 21. Luke chapter 12, 13 through 21. This is the word of the living God. Jesus is uh, instructing on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. Someone in the crowd said to him, that being the Lord Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or ravenous greed, literally. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, that is to illustrate the truth he's just said there in 15, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things, that is your possessions, you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and, not, and is not rich toward God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray and ask this blessing. Our Lord and our God, we would come to you as those who are prone to find our identity, to find purpose and meaning in those things that you've given us. And I think not only in possessions, but I, I know even this younger generation today finds meaning and purpose uh, in experiences, uh, experiences that are bought with, with money. So Lord, we would come this night uh, aware of our own proclivity and our propensity to leave the God we profess to love and hold fast to the things of the world that are perishing. Oh, Father, that we would not be fools, that we would be those who are wise, who understand riches are given as a stewardship, and that riches can fly away as quickly as they <laughs> land in our own hands. Lord, they can, they can be gone in a moment. Uh, nevertheless, even our soul can be gone in a moment when we're called home. So, Lord, help us. Give us grace, we pray, to walk humbly with you. Whether we have much or whether we have little, Lord, it's all about the attitude of the heart and the way that we hold it. Lord, give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul warns his young apprentice, Timothy, there in Ephesus with these sober words, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. The examples from biblical history regarding the misuse of money are numerous. You can think of 
Achan's greed there in Joshua chapter 7. You can think of the, the many women and the worldly goods that Solomon and God's grace had accumulated and yet wooed his heart away from God. And then we, tonight we had Mr. Hutton read and tell us a little bit about Gehazi, that servant of Elisha. His greed ended in leprosy. And then, of course, in the New Testament, right, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. Don't, don't, don't mistake that. It's the same God. Now, the administration of the covenant is in types and shadows in the Old Covenant, but it's the same God. The integrity of God, he is the Lord, he changes not. The immutability of God is forever the same. With Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit because of their, their greed, and they were taken out of the visible church in a moment. Saints, alongside sexual lust and pride, the love of money is one of the main causes of shipwrecked souls. This being the case, should we not be... We should not rather be surprised that the Bible spills so much ink in reflecting on our attitude toward money. So this evening, what I'd like to do is look at this text very simply. Look at the context for the parable, right? Why is Jesus giving a parable? What precipitated that? Then look at the parable itself, and then along the way, we're going to sprinkle in and pepper in uh, some applications. Okay, I think I need to cut this mic on if I'm going to be in good favor with Mr. Uh, Hannigan up there. Okay. So first, the context. Luke tells us in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, rabbi, rabboni, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, there are a lot, there's a lot we're not told about in this parable, in this story, rather. Right? Who is this someone? We don't know anything about his family other than that there's this matter regarding an inheritance. Perhaps the head of the home, the father has passed. But I would note that death of the man's father has done very little to affect his passions and greed within his heart. Right? Now, don't miss that. Right? I think God allows death in, in our purview of life to kind of center the mind and center the affections of the heart. But it did very little in the life of this man. Notice what his soul obsession is. It's his inheritance. And Jesus has been teaching about internal matters. He's told the crowd, beware of hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's also taught on having godly fear, not fearing those who can kill the body, but fearing God who can cast your soul into hell. And then abruptly, seemingly out of nowhere, comes this chap asking Jesus to serve as judge and arbiter between him and his brother. And I thought to myself, had not this man heard anything that Jesus had just said, this man has one thing on his mind, and that's money. That's what he believes is rightfully his. My brother, I'll get it. What kind of phileo love he had for his brother, we don't know where that is. It's surely not in the text. J.C. Ryle asks, and if you're not reading Ryle, you need to be reading Ryle. How many are incessantly planning and scheming about the things of time, even under the very sound of the things of eternity? Meaning, how many of us this evening have come in here to hear the word of God, expounded faithfully, we hope, 
right, about eternal things, and yet we're so consumed. Our hearts are so caught up with thinking even about tomorrow, tomorrow's activities, tomorrow's decisions, the cares, the anxious thoughts, right? Ryle has it right, doesn't he? Saints, this man in the text is obsessed with what he thinks is rightfully his, his portion. He's completely blind to the needs of his own soul. So Jesus answers him, man, right? I couldn't help but think of John 2, woman, right? The similar kind of thing is very direct, right? Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Now, it was common for rabbis and teachers in that day and in that context to uh, field these kinds of questions, to answer these kinds of questions, to, to, hate, to help people think through and arbitrate these matters. But Jesus is clear that this outside his sphere of his calling, clearly the man is confused regarding who Jesus is and Jesus' mission. Now, Calvin has a very interesting section here where he digresses and begins to talk about how the man of God, like the Lord Jesus Christ, needs to stay in his lane, stay on point, stay on mission. Red, you'd love it. It's excellent. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, to see men reconciled to God, right? Not to speak on all types of sundry matters, not that we don't in our certain venues, certain times, but he came on mission. We must stay on mission. So Jesus refuses to intervene, not because he's not qualified, but because he's not called to do so. Something beyond our purview, our mission, we need to stay on point. The Lord Jesus, as an excellent teacher, uses this opportunity to instruct, right? He doesn't waste any time. Isn't that beautiful about Jesus? Every moment is a teaching moment. Here it is, right here. Notice what he does, verse 15. Jesus, them, notice them, don't read it too fast because you'll miss it. It doesn't say Jesus said to him. Jesus said to them, he's going to take this opportunity to teach the crowd that's gathered. You see, because this entourage is now following Jesus, the throngs of people on the way to Jerusalem for the last time. Take care, Jesus says, and be on your guard against all covetousness, every form of greed, right? Beloved, the Lord Jesus knows this man's heart. Now, this man doesn't know his own heart, but Jesus knows his heart, right? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart of man is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? None of us can know our own heart. But here's the Lord Jesus Christ, the great physician, the Savior of the church, knowing the heart of this man. He understands that this man's greatest problem is not a family inheritance, but rather greed, the Tenth Commandment. I thought to myself, too, how about this? How about Paul there in Romans 7? How the Tenth Commandment was the commandment that cut Paul's heart to the core. Thou shalt not covet. Right? You can't get around that one very easily. Because that's the attitude of the heart. The posture of the man, the woman, the boy, the girl. Towards money, towards possessions, towards experiences like I prayed about, right? Don't, don't miss that, right? Don't let possessions get you you know I'm, oh, I'm not a materialist well do you take your money and do you do you love to spend it on experiences maybe you like to dine out maybe you like to go on vacations we've got a whole culture a whole generation of young people who want experiences they're not looking to accumulate things they're looking to accumulate experiences hedonistic experiences right i love them Above it, I'm in the same mold. 
I'm, a, I'm Adam's son. I know. I love eating good food. I love going into nice vacations. I love all of these things. But take heed. Beware. Right? Be in your guard. Beware of what? All covetousness, ruthless greed. Saints, beware of the consuming desire to have more and more material things or more experiences and an obsession with the accumulation of more stuff. Notice what he says. Be on your guard. There's there's nothing passive here. The verb here is a present middle imperative, meaning get on it like white on rice. Green on grass, blue on sky, guard your heart. Take heed lest you fall. Right? That's what he's saying. Leon Morris likens it to taking of a positive action to ward off a foe. Now, do you think that way? I don't know that I do. A foe? Someone's in your house, 3 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) It's not the time to be hospitable. If you have, if not invited, they've broken the door in. You're going to defend your family. You're going to defend your wife. You're going to defend your children. You're going to fight off this foe. Well, that's the, the idea here. It must be beaten back. Greed and covetousness must be mortified. It must be put to death. Put a knife in it. Pastor, isn't that a little over the top? Isn't that extreme? Isn't that a little bit too much with that Jesus dude? Right? That's what we tell us. That's what people tell us. Not when we understand that greed and covetousness diverts our attention from that which truly, which that which life truly consists of. Jesus goes on, verse 15, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. What Jesus here says flies in the face of the unbelieving world. You ask the average person on the street, if we were to go out in Carytown after the service this evening and ask them, what is the good life? Tell me. We can ask some of ourselves, right? What's the good life? What is the life worth living? A life longed for by countless millions of people. Is it not the life of a boundless material wealth? Right? Students choose college majors Asking, wow, what's going to make me the most money? Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? We're going to speak about that in just a moment. But you must qualify that, right? Employment decisions are heavily driven by the bottom line. Why? Because the life of wealth is the life, the life worth living. And if this were true, right? He who with the most toys wins, then you better get after getting most toys. Right? That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says no. Greed is dangerous because it sends you and I down the broad road. The easy road. It's downhill. There are no obstacles on that road. You're insulated. You're bubble wrapped. Right? I tease my sons about that sometimes. Being bubble wrapped. Right? got to be careful. And in the end, it leads to death, that broad road. It leads to judgment. It leads to destruction. 
saints, it's in this context now, the Lord Jesus Christ takes this opportune time to say, I've got some instruction for the people, for the crowds, right? To illustrate the dangers of greed. So he tells us in verses 16 to 17, after saying one's life does not consist of one's possessions or one's experiences or anything found in this created world. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now here's the story of a certain rich man whose land was so productive, he had insufficient space to store it. The banks weren't big enough. <laughs> Think about that. Right? The barns were not big enough. And Jesus tells us, though, that the man made the fatal mistake of equating wealth. Now listen, equating wealth for longevity. That was his mistake. Listen to Calvin. The rich man lengthens out his expectations of life in proportion to his large income and drives far away from the remembrance of death. Right? You see, all this man can see is his wealth. And living out his days on that nice yacht, he's bought that nice home down there in Boca Raton. Oh, my, a beautiful boat. One of those nice yachts that has the helo pad on it. You ever been down in Boca Raton and seen this? I have. It blows your mind. The wealth. Beautiful blue sea, white sand, gorgeous. I mean, extravagant. <laughs> as good as it gets. He's relaxing. He envisions eating, drinking, and being merry. So what can we stop and evaluate and say about this man? First, the first thing we can say about this man is that this man lives as if there is no God. Now, we're not told he's an atheist. He's probably not. If you were to ask him on the street, do you believe in God? Oh, yeah, I believe in God, yeah. But he's a practical atheist. No matter what he profess, professes to believe, he lives without God anywhere in the equation of his life, the meaning of his life, any decisions he makes. He never consults God. He never even consults the godly. Right? He never consults the elders. Right? He's clueless regarding the source of his wealth. Right? Right? Many this evening would love to have the problem this man had. Right? Not having a bank large enough. Not having enough space to store all their wealth. And again, let me say this. It, you know, before I go too far and you mis misunderstand me, I want you to understand I must be apt to teach, right? I want you to understand, wealth is a blessing. It's a blessing. Listen to Proverbs 10, 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. So it's a blessing, but not wielded and used properly under the stewardship of the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus Christ. It, that very blessing can, can become a curse. Right? Right? The question the man seems to forget is this. How did I get so rich? Why is my field so productive? Why are my crops bumper crops? He doesn't ask that. 
Paul asked the question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you have not received? That's a good question to ask yourself. If you're talented, you, you, we're so talented. There, I can look out here, I'm amazed at the talent in this room. Though we're small this evening, there's a lot of talented people here. But Paul would say to us, the Holy Spirit would say to us, kids, what do you have that you have not received? So you're smart. Great. God gave you the brain. You're good looking. Well, that's great. Wonderful. Good. Use those looks for the glory of God. Be wise as serpents, innocent as a dove. Right? You know a lot of theology. Great. Get after it. Start using it in service of the church. Right? But you see, this man was so busy looking down on his riches, he had forgotten to look up to the God who gave it. He's totally oblivious to God's providence and hand in his wealth. Notice he thinks to himself, he, he has these thoughts. What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? He's pondering, he's meditating. That's good, that's commendable. Oh, to stop and think. Lloyd-Jones would say, the problem with the unbelieving world is they never stop, they don't think. And he was saying that back in the 20th century. What would he say today? This pixel a digital age in which we are obsessed with, with the tyranny of the moment, the urgency of the moment, right? He's just not meditating on the right subject. We don't find him thanking God for his wealth, nor do we see him seeking God's wisdom about how to steward it. Instead, he, he sees his wealth as entirely as his own. His only concern is the acquisition of more. Right? He's obsessed. Oh, to have this kind of love for God. Right? Now, maybe you don't have a lot materially. I've met a lot of people who are by the world's calculus, even in the United States, poor. You can be greedy and ravishingly covetousness with just $10. You don't need Elon Musk money, right? You can have the, uh, the beggar's money and still have this problem with greed and ravenous covetousness, you see. J.C. Ryle says, the more acres a man has, the more cares. The more his money increases, the more of his time is generally consumed and eaten up in thinking about it. That's exactly right. Notice the man is also unaware of any higher use of his wealth than personal consumption. The man ponders on what he shall do. Notice what he does. In verse 17, we're told he thought to himself, notice the self-centered approach to the use of the, of the personal pronouns. And I, I'll emphasize this. Verse 18, he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Masterful teacher. Of course, he's God. He's teaching us. The folly of thinking one's life consists of one's possessions or one's experiences. Oh, the fool. A bit of advice, and this is free advice. <laughs> Friends, if you find yourself in a conversation using first-person singular pronouns, whether that conversation is with yourself or others, you might want to pause and just reevaluate. If you find yourself using the personal pronoun I a lot, I don't know, I'm just saying, 
maybe you just want to call a timeout. I just, I found that to be wise. But you see, here's a person who's only concerned with self-indulgent. Verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Right? How did a man so accomplished forget the simple truth, money cannot buy more time? Right? You, you hear about these billionaires, that's the thing they're trying to, to, to read about and try to accomplish now. They want to thwart death. Right? Like Disney, Walt Disney, right? Put your, what is it? I can't even remember the process, but you know, just somehow just put my body away in some kind of cubicle where it can be preserved, and then one day a, a cure, you know. Lunacy. Folly, kids. Folly. Sad. It's sad. You know, we don't want to sit in judgment. It's, it's sad. It should make us weep and mourn the folly of man. Right? Here's a man who's forgotten his own mortality. He assumes he has many years. With all the safety, with all safely stored away in his barns, he looks forward to years of pleasure. Amazed how many people live this way, assuming not only that their wealth is theirs, but their time also is theirs. Now, you don't know how many cranes of sand you have in your hourglass, but let me remind you, the hourglass belongs to God. And the grains of sand in that hourglass belong to God. He knows. He knows the day of your death. You ever think about the day of your death? I do. I think you should. It's sobering. It focuses the mind. This week I was uh, thinking about this, my own mortality and the text before us. Uh, British Journal of Medicine had a study a study of Shell Oil employees uh, where this study shows that people who retire at age 55 and live to be at least 65 die sooner than people who retire at 65. After 65, the early retirees have a 37% higher risk of death than the counterparts who retired at 65. That's not all. People who retire at 55 are 89% more likely to die in the first 10 years after retirement than those who retire at 65. What is that? What do you think God's trying to teach us with that? Just that's a common grace kind of revelation, right? (laughs) Not to retire at 55? Maybe not. I think about retirement. I got a couple people in here that remind me, oh, not yet. While I'm sitting over there, that beautiful one over there. She's always reminding me. But we all do. We all envision just sitting back and relaxing, drinking Muay Thais and, you know, whatever, doing this and doing that and going here and going there, right? Doing something for me, right? Beware. Beware. Kids, I I just can't tell you. Beware, right? He who drives those nice cars, you see those nice cars going up, pulling up beside you, right? That Maserati, that Ferrari. I love cars. They're, They're a snare to me. Beware, beware. But this is not just a problem for those at retirement age. Now listen to this. Young people live as though they are immortal as well. During World War II, now listen to this. Armed services found that 18-year-olds made, better, better fighter, made the best fighter pilots, remarkably better than even 22-year-olds. Why is that? Four years. Why would an 18-year-old be better at a, 
being a, a fighter pilot than a 22-year-old. The 22-year-olds are beginning to be aware of their mortality. Where the 18-year-olds, they ever. Beware. Take heed. Take care. Right? Your life is but a mist. Right? A hand breath, this much. I think, and I preached a, a memorial for Plum. That just really struck me. Psalm 39 says, your life is this big. That's it. The second thing we notice about the man, he, like all of us, will meet reality. The man is clearly drunk in this hedonistic dream, and Jesus says in verse 20, But God said to him, Fool! <laughs> this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? All those barns? All those cars? All those homes? Saints, in the Bible, a fool is someone who lives contrary to reality. It's the person who jumps out of the 10-story building with a sheet thinking they're going to float to the bottom. It's the farmer who does not understand the way sea seasons work in sowing and reaping. It's a medical community that tells a man that he can have a baby. It's denying the nature of things. It's denying reality. And the greatest reality one can deny is reality itself, who is God. With a capital R. He is the greatest fool. You see, the fool ignores the fact that they are mortal. God said, fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Time up, no more sand in the hourglass. It's appointed unto men once to die, Hebrews 9, 27, and then face the judgment. No second chances. No reincarnation. You see, all roads will lead you to God. Only one gets you there forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of another. And that's Jesus Christ. The man in the story missed the road. He foolishly wagered the one thing his money could not buy, which was his soul. And what did it profit him? He had the whole world. And now God came calling for his soul. He was not prepared to meet his maker. Are you prepared to meet your maker? Pastor, this is all saints. This is Reformed Presbyterian Church. We've been here for 30-some years. Are you ready to meet God? You know God. You know Jesus Christ. You live in a, a fool's dream. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Serving and worshiping the creation rather than the creator who's forever blessed. Suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Hiding like bugs under a rock. 
there you come into the light and find forgiveness. Find mercy. One commentator highlighted this word required. See that word required in verse 20? It carries with it the idea of life as a loan, which must be returned to God. Heidelberg Catechism, question one, you're not your own. Your life's on loan. You're on loan from God. A loan which must be returned. Here we have a preview of Judgment Day. Let me just ask you some questions. Imagine we're standing there like this man. God has called us. This night, your very soul is required of you. How did you use, how did I use what God loaned to you? How are you using it? Well, I don't have a lot. No, I didn't ask that question. What you do have, how are you using it? Did you waste it on yourself? Living for the now? Did we use it to love our God and those made in His image? How can we say we love God and not love that person who comes to us with that need made in His very image? Oh, be fat and be merry. Come to church on Sunday. We care nothing for that person. We never go out and show that person any love or concern or care. You see, the riches had blinded this man. It deceived him into thinking that his great wealth was a guarantee to longevity, to immortality. And God says, this night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be, right? <laughs> who's who's, who's going to own the cars now and all the, those, that money, right? Those homes. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, says Psalm 39.6. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. In the end, there really is nothing rich about the man. He's a fool. Rich, not so much. In the end, all his riches could not save him nor prolong his life. But not only his life. Notice what verse 21 says. And here's where it gets really into the nooks and crannies for us. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Beloved, we're all prone to this. We live in the most affluent time and the most affluent nation ever in the history of mankind. And I don't want to qualify it. We are rich. Beware. Take heed. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool into thinking that one's life consists in one's possessions or one's experiences. Let him, let her, let us who have ears, let us hear the word of the living God. Store up your treasure in heaven where rust and moth cannot destroy, 
there was one who did just that, whose treasure was always found in obeying God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising the shame to secure our salvation. Paul writes, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. Church, in grace, let's be rich toward God and toward those made in his image. And let's pray for eyes to see as he sees, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. Bless his holy name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness, your mercy. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for, Father, that you rebuke us, you correct us, you train us in righteousness by this holy word because you love us. You love us with a holy love, not to leave us in our sin, not to leave us with vain idolatries and false loves, but to redirect our affections, redirect our loves to the one who is lovely above all, the one who owns 10,000 cattle on 10,000 hills, the one who blesses us with riches, that we might hold them loosely, that we might steward them for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the good of his kingdom, for the advancement of his kingdom and the good of the church. Oh, Father, give us wisdom, we pray. If any man lacks, let him ask without doubting, and so he shall have it. So, Lord, we come and pray and ask this in your holy name. Amen.